We're Missio Phoenix, a community of God's people learning to live in God's ways for the sake of our city. All right, we're going to be in Acts chapter 2 again. So we're at the beginning of Acts chapter 2 last week. We're going to look at the end of the chapter this week, verses 42 through 47. We're looking at what is known as like the very first church, the prototype church, the very early church, right? And so if you've been tracking with us through this year, we've been going through an overview of the whole Bible, the whole story of the Bible from Genesis, and we're going to be moving to Revelation. And we're only in Acts, and you're like, oh, there's less than like two months left. How are we going to do that, Chris? Because we've been skipping a bunch, right? And so hopefully what it's doing is it's also inspiring you to be in the Word more on your own as well. But we're just kind of getting a bird's eye view of everything there, a summary. And so we've seen that God is a God who created all things, and he created one unique creature, humanity, to be his representative, to be like this mediator in a sense, this liaison, this go-between, this ambassador. A living statue is actually the word used in the scripture, representation of the creator to the rest of creation. And so that was our call as humans. And then, of course, we know the story goes that we've rebelled against that, right? The first two humans on our behalf, but also every single one of us ever since, if we're honest, with our own hearts that we have rebelled against the idea that we're supposed to reflect God as king over all creation. And instead, we want to be little kings and queens, right? That we want to put ourselves up on the throne, that we want to have control over our own lives. And we saw throughout that story, as it says in Judges, that people did whatever they thought was right in their own eyes. And time and time again, what it brought was violence, oppression, injustice, selfishness, divorce, all kinds of things that just tearing apart communities, tearing apart families, tearing apart relationship with God. And so the people were separated from God, but God did not give up. He wanted to restore relationship with humans, but also relationships among the humans and their relationship with creation that they were called to care for and tend to. And so God continued to pursue his people. And again, Huge fast forward here, but eventually what we see is God's plan come to its climax in one human who would come and do all those things perfectly the way that the first human was supposed to. One human, again, born of the spirit, just like God breathed his spirit into the first thing of clay that he molded out of the dirt that came and lived perfectly, that loved perfectly, that obeyed perfectly, that cared for other people, even the ones that didn't care about him, even the ones that no one else cared about, that he, he moved toward those who were marginalized. He fed them. He cleaned them. He spoke to them and gave them good news. He healed them. He even brought some of them back from the dead as a picture of what was going to come in fullness one day. And even as he was being murdered because This idea that God should be king and not me was threatening to the humans around him. So as he was being murdered, he still continued to love even to the very end and to serve to the very end. Though he had all the power and authority of God to completely free himself and overcome all of them, he willingly submitted himself to death. 
and still prayed for them in the process. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And the people who had followed him for three years, day in and day out, who thought, finally, the rescuer has come to set us free from the Roman oppression, this government that has taken control of our people. Now he's dead. And they're wondering, what in the world just happened, right? Everything we we put our hopes and dreams in, everything we put all of our efforts in for these last three years, day in and day out. I mean, we left everything. We left our homes, our families, our jobs, our livelihood. We followed this man, this homeless man for three years. And now they killed him. Just imagine that loss that was there, right? And the confusion and the fear and the anger. And then on the third day, The same spirit breathed into the first man, the same spirit who Jesus himself was born of was breathed back into his lungs again. And in that very body he was born on this earth in, he gets up and he walks out and he is alive and he's still alive today. And in a sense, you could say like, that's the end of the story. Jesus is risen. One day now I'm gonna die and go up to heaven. I'll float in the clouds with him, right? But that's that's not the whole story. I mean, just, Grab your Bible, right? And if you get to where the four gospel accounts are and you look at the last one and then you look at, oh, we still have a good amount of story left there. And that's only what happened immediately after. We're still living the story even now. So why is that? Jesus rises from the grave. He starts showing himself to his followers. They start to believe finally. And then he goes, okay, now I'm going to peace out. Now I'm going to go, I'm going to go away, and I'm going to prepare a place for us to dwell together. The whole goal from the beginning, for God to dwell with humanity. With humanity being fully restored to one another, to creation, and to God, so that we would have right relationship with him. He goes, I'm I'm going to go, and I'm going to prepare that place. I'm going to bring it back down to you. But in the meantime... In the meantime, I'm inviting you now to join in the work that I have started. This is what's crazy is even though Jesus says it is finished, also his resurrection is called the first fruits of restoration and resurrection. What that means is the first of many to come. So in a sense, Jesus says what he came to do is accomplished on the cross, but when he rises again, what he's saying is we're just getting started. That's why he tells his followers, you're gonna do even greater things than what I did while I walked on this earth. Why? Not because we're greater, but because he will be with us always through it all. Because the same spirit that breathed into the first man, the same spirit that breathed into the lungs of Jesus's body came and breathed upon his followers on the day that we call Pentecost, which is what we looked at last week. The breath of God, like a rushing wind, came in and filled these people who were scared and hiding and enabled them to actually live out the thing Jesus called them to do. Now be those representatives, those living statues, showing the rest of the world what Jesus is like so that they would be invited into this story too. So that was the beginning of Acts chapter two, that they they go out and then they start preaching. Peter just starts telling the whole story. He's reminding them, hey, do you remember Abraham? Do you remember King David? Do you remember these promises that came through our ancestors? It has come through Jesus and you killed him. But he's the true son of God. He's the rescuer. 
And they, like thousands of them were like, oh my goodness, what did we do? What do we have to do now? And he says, turn away from that, the lies that you're believing. Believe this story I'm telling you. Be immersed in Jesus and you will be given a whole new identity. And thousands were saved that day. It's incredible. So in verse 42, we're going to pick up and see how did they live after that? If you've been with Missio for a while, then you know that we have a way, a lens that we like to use to read through the Bible to help us understand it better. And it's a lens that says the story doesn't start with us. It starts with God. Because often we can come to the Bible, we can read and go, okay, what do I do about this, right? But what we first ask is who is God in this story? What has God done because of his character? Now, who are we because of what God has done? And then we finally get to the fourth question, which we're looking at this morning. Now, how do we live if all that's true? Our identity is in what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. Now, how do we live, right? Before I read, uh, let me just make a confession to you guys real quick. So a few people in the last couple of weeks have called me out on not being very good at delegating things, uh, which means like not handing over roles and responsibilities to people, which is really just a nice way like people in leadership cover up the reality that like I'm a control freak, that I can't trust control over to other people. So I was that kid uh, growing up, whenever you got assigned a group project at school, I would just tell my friends, like, hey, I'll do it. Don't worry about it. It's just easier if I do it, right? Like, just take the week off. I got this. Because I couldn't trust that they were actually going to do their part. I had been burned from that before. You show up and it's like, why are we missing this whole section? All right, fine. I'll do it next time, right? But what I've started to discover throughout life is there are some things that necessitate group projects that you can't just say, I will do this on my own. Uh, Team sports is a great example of that. But you know what I did? I found a way around that. I found a loophole and I wrestled in high school. Even though like there's still a team and a, a tournament, like you're still adding up everyone's points. So the team has a standing in the tournament. I still like once you're on the mat, it's just me, right? That control issue. But then I realized, oh, there, there's some other things like I can't do that. For example, marriage. It's a group project. Right? I can't do that on my own. Suddenly I realize, oh, the things I do really impact this other person. And the things that she does really impact me. And I don't have a whole lot of control over that part, right? So we have to figure out how to start doing this together in partnership. What are some other examples of group projects where that's required? You can't get away from it. Spark your imagination a little bit. What about playing catch? Never see someone playing catch by themselves, right? What's that? Pitchback? I don't even know what that is. Oh, man, come on. There's an invention for our individualism right there. (laughs) All right. So playing catch, maybe not a great example. What are some other examples? You were going to say something? Oh, get out of here. (laughs) John. 
<laughs> oh, man. How many dogs can you keep in that thing? <laughs> That's like an, an intense dog kennel. That's a great example, right? It was a lot easier when they came to help. Uh, this week, we, I was installing a cable across the beam here by myself. And I went and I grabbed this 16-foot ladder that was out here. And so I asked uh, Rhonda, who's over the buildings and grounds here with Northminster, I was like, hey, don't you have a ladder that I can reach like to this high ceiling in here? And she's like, yeah, it's out there. She goes, it's really heavy though. You're gonna need a second person. I was like, okay. And she goes, because my husband and I were moving it and it was really hard. He was huffing and puffing. And I was like, Rhonda, you got 30 years on me. Like I can do this, all right? <laughs> I didn't say that. Uh, but that was what I was, I was like, okay, okay. And I, in my head, I'm like, all right. Well, if the two of you moved it, I got this. So I moved it, but my back still hurts from moving it. Like seriously, this thing was heavy. Uh, I moved it. I had to stop a few times, set it down and keep, I moved all the way in here. And then I couldn't, I was on that side. So it was too tall. I couldn't even use it. Thankfully, speaking of teamwork, John was here. Uh, he ends up coming over. He's like, hey man, what are you up to? And I'm like, dude, you think you can help me move this ladder back? I do not want to do that again. Uh, so then I got a shorter ladder and this was a six foot ladder and that was too short. So I thought, you know what I'm gonna do? I'm gonna set up four chairs here and I'll put a ladder. You guys, I seriously, I had the ladder up there. I started to put it one foot and then I was like, what am I doing? <laughs> so then Patrick came and he brought his ladder and we were able to do it. Teamwork, right? Group project. That was me, like an idiot, trying to be like, I got this group project all on my own. I don't need you guys. Other example of group projects. The church is a group project. And let me just say it more clearly. Following Jesus is a group project. You cannot do it on your own. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Ricky. There you go. Being baptized, right? You're not just going to go dunk your own head in the water. <laughs> it starts with a partnership of humans coming together. Jesus tells his disciples, go and baptize, right? There's a man uh, walking and this guy, Philip, with him, and he tells him the story in the Bible and Acts, and then Philip goes, or the eunuch goes, uh, what do I do now? Why not, why not be baptized, right? But he needed this other guy there to tell him the story and to do the baptism. We can't do the church alone. We can't follow Jesus alone. And so what we're gonna see here is in the same way that I had to radically reorient my life around marriage, my, my whole rhythms of my life were completely changed around in the same way, when we start following Jesus, our whole lives get radically reoriented around the community of God's people. It's the longest setup I've ever done. We can finally read now. Acts 2, verse 42. Reading to the end of the chapter. They, this is the thousands of people who believed in the words of the disciples. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe, and many wonders and signs were being performed through the apostles. Now all the believers were together and held all things in common. They sold their possessions and property and distributed the proceeds to all as any had need. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. 
They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. This is God's word. Father, we pray that through this, we would see what you have for your people still even today. In Jesus' name, amen. The first missional community I was a part of, that my wife and I were a part of, we were going through this book that was talking about how do you do missional community, right? How do you live this out? And in that process, there's a guy who just kept coming back to, you guys, this is so easy. It says it right here. It lays it out for us. What we need to do, and then he would go through some really crazy stuff. Like we need to just like sell our stuff, right? We need to like put all of it into one pool together and just share what we have, right? We need to all move into the same neighborhood. Like why aren't we doing this stuff? And I was like, did we just join a cult? Like, what is this place? And unfortunately, I'm looking around and other people are like just as freaked out as I am, right? I think oftentimes we read this, this picture of what the early church was and we go, oh, we're not doing those things. That's what we're supposed to be doing. Again, starting backwards with what do I do, right? So when it says, and they were all meeting together in the temple daily, We don't do that, do we? We don't every single day come to a place together and worship together. And so what I want to do is kind of tear, like peel back the curtain of like, hey, here's what they did and get more to the heart of what God was doing amongst them. Does that make sense? So some examples of this. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together What does that look like just to like know that you're doing life together with the people in this room? And that doesn't mean you necessarily have to see everybody every day for a worship service. But what that means is that no matter what's going on in your life, you can call on, right? Or if you're doing something, you can invite other people into it, right? Like many of us have had our kids join the same sports team so that we can do that part of life together. And we can get to know the other parents together. I know some people who are just like, hey, I'm, I'm working on a, I'm moving a dog kennel. Can you guys come help me, right? I'm working on this project at my house. Do you want to come hang out? There's been several times where someone's like, hey, can we get together, Chris? And I'm like, yeah, but I'm going to be doing this at Cultivate. So come hang out at Cultivate with me. And we're just inviting each other into the normal rhythms of our life. The heart behind that being that this group of people back then were committed not just to the worship of God, but also to doing it together. And that we would be committed to not just following the letter of the law and following the rules that are laid out here, but we would be committed to seeing all of our life as worship to God and to doing that life together with one another, right? It says that they had all things in common, Now, when I used to read this when I was younger, I would be like, that's impossible. Like, nobody agrees on anything, (laughs) you know, to have all things in common, because that's how I used that phrase growing up, or, or how that phrase was used around me, was if you have something in common, right? Like, Brian walked in this morning, saw my friend Matt with a Raiders hat, and he's like, oh, another Raiders fan. I almost kicked them both out, but, you know, Jesus sat with sinners too, and so they're both still here but they had something in common. They, they both like the Raiders, right? And so that's how I always use that phrase. But 
That's not what this means here. It literally means all their things, their stuff, were common use for all people. Like they literally did do the weird thing that this guy mentioned in our first MC of like, oh, let's just like pull our resources together. And if anybody needs anything, we have it all right here, right? Now here's what's beautiful about that because we see later throughout the story of the Bible, later throughout the New Testament, through all the letters, they definitely did not have all ideas in common. They would argue about many important things and also not very important things. But what they did is they committed themselves to being a community with one another and saying, if you are in need and I have it, not only is it my responsibility, but it's my joy to make sure that you're cared for. Because what are we called to do? To show what our creator is like who provides for us and to care for the world around us. So I have a brother or sister who's in need of something and I have it. And I go, man, I'll pray for you. Good luck. Is that following in the ways of Jesus who was willing to give everything he had, even his own life for you and I? Does that necessarily mean that you need to like empty your bank account and we're gonna put it all into a Missio fund, right? We're just to get a big bucket, come drop everything in here and just like whenever you need something, freely go up and grab it. No, it doesn't, that's not how our current world works, right? But what, what can it mean? Can it mean that if somebody in here is like, I don't know how I'm gonna pay rent this month, can say that? And that we as a community come around and say, hey, we got you. We got you. Let, let, let's help with the immediate need. Let's also look at like, how come you can't pay rent? Like sometimes what that means is in discipleship is like, let's, let's talk about how you're handling your finances, right? Sometimes what that means is like, hey, I, I know of this job you can go apply for, right? But are we meeting that need together? What am I still doing though? I'm still, I'm still just scratching the surface of the last question moving backwards. What do we do, right? Yeah, I'm getting to the heart behind why they did what they did, but we're still talking about what can we do? How do we be the church better, right? And we're missing something. So if we drill all the way back down to the first question, who is God? God is the one who spoke and all creation came into being. And he's the one who breathed his breath his spirit, and life happened. What did he do? His spirit was hovering over the waters of creation. And as he spoke, life came forth. What did he do in Acts 2? His breath rushed into the room. And suddenly these people who were arguing about who was gonna be Jesus's right-hand man, who were arguing about how they were gonna fight Rome and bring in swords with them, who were scared and denying that Jesus was someone they knew when he got caught and so they ran and hid away. Suddenly all those people, those messy people, filled with the spirit became alive and they went out and they shared good news with the people around them. What did God do? Thousands of those people believed their words. That wasn't them. They were just obedient to the part God called them to. God rescued these people. What did God do? He formed them together as a community. What I want us to see is 
in partnership in a group project. God invites us into a group project with him. And oftentimes this is what we do. We err on one of two sides. We either go, I have to do all these things in order to be accepted by God and to be a follower of Jesus, right? Like we church, we need to do these things better. Or we err on the other side and we just go, hey, God's got this. I don't gotta do a thing. God's in control. Why, why aren't you wearing your seatbelt? Oh, if God wants me to die, I'll die. Right? Why aren't you working? God provides for me. No, no, no. God created us to be partners with him, to be representatives of him, to be living statues that show the rest of the world what he's like. He calls us into a partnership. Jesus commissioned, commissioned his followers. He invited them into the work that he had begun. And his spirit came upon them to empower them to do that work. Now, what's our part and what's God's part? This is where it can get really tricky, right? I think scripture tells us flat out right here. What does it say? At the very end, verse 47, they were praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day, who added to their number? Every day, the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Whose job is it to save people? Whose job is it to remove the scales from people's eyes so they can actually see truth? Who was doing that work? Every day, who added? The Lord. You know, what's interesting is in Acts 2, Peter gets up and he goes through like the whole story, right? He, he reminds them of the covenant. He reminds them of the promises from God made through Abraham and through David. And he takes them through it. And thousands of people believe him. And this beautiful community starts. You know, there's another guy later on in Acts named Stephen. And Stephen does a similar thing. He goes through the history. He goes through the whole story. And he goes, do you remember Abraham? Do you remember David? Do you remember the promise God gave through these people? And what does the crowd do to Stephen? They throw stones at him till he dies. The spirit was still present though. Because we're told in that, that the spirit came upon Stephen and he actually had a peace, a hope, and a joy even while being killed. Similar, he got to represent similar to how his savior did that for him. So the spirit was still at work, but God decides what the outcome's gonna be, right? They were just being faithful to their part, their partnership with the spirit. I think a lot of times like we, we get... We, I mean, let's just, like, we look around and we're like, how come we don't have 500 people in this church? Like, where are the results, right? Or maybe like in your missional community, here's the thing. We, we just had our missional community, we did a dinner on the Romano's driveway two weeks ago. And we're like, man, we're gonna, some school students were in here, right? So that you guys met some of them, like the pastors that were coming from all over the United States to come and learn about missional communities. And we're like, we're gonna do this neighborhood barbecue, like dinner on the driveway. We're gonna have a screen up with like a movie playing for the kids. We're gonna invite all the Romano's neighbors to come over. It's gonna be great. Their, their girls went out and invited, like how do you turn down an invitation from a cute little kid, right? Like they invited the neighbors to come over. We show up and nobody comes. Nobody comes. What did we do wrong, right? 
There's been other times where we've decided as a missional community to feed people, to feed neighbors, and too many people come and we don't have enough food. We can't control that. We have no control over that outcome. What we are called to is to be faithful though in our part. So, so we show up and we set the table. I really feel like my job and the role that I have of equipping the saints for the work of ministry. And here's the thing. It's your job too, saints, doing the work of the ministry. I can't feed people. Like I can't force feed you. I know Jesus told Peter, feed my sheep. Listen where I'm going with this. I can't shove it down your throat with a fork, right? But I can set the table. I can make sure Jesus is the actual meal we're feasting on, not anything else. And I can invite you to it. But it's up to you and the spirit working within you if you're gonna come sit down and eat or not. Your job, the saints who go out scattered into the world, it's the same thing. You cannot force your neighbors, your coworkers, your family members to come and believe this story, but you can set the table. You can offer the meal and you can invite them to come and eat. And that's it. Last week with our missional community, we had a family that just shared something really tough that's going on in their life, really hard. And as, as a community together, we got to sit there, we got to listen, we got to promise like, hey, we'll, we'll do our best to walk through this with you. And we got to pray, but we cannot heal what's going on there. We can't bring healing to that situation. Only the spirit can do that. But we have a part. And I love how this section, starting in verse 42, going to verse 47, it kind of sandwiches that partnership by laying it out clearly. Verse 47 was that the Lord added to the number of those who were being saved. But what did the people do? Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. We have a part to play in this partnership with God, that we are to devote ourselves to one another, to the word, to to, to believing the true story of who God is and what he's done, to praying together, to sitting down at the table with one another. And as we commit to that, as we devote ourselves to that, I believe God's going to do his part, that the spirit will show up. And sometimes it might look like what happened for Peter when he preached. Sometimes it might look like what happened for Stephen when he preached. But God's going to show up nonetheless. Peter got to see thousands come to the Lord. And I think with Stephen's story, thousands more came to the Lord later. Because guess who was overseeing that moment when Stephen was stoned and murdered? It was a guy by the name of Saul. Saul, who was a devout Jewish follower of Yahweh and believed that Jesus was a threat to that faith and their way of life, was doing everything he could to shut down this group project that was known as the way, these people following Jesus and even allowing them to be killed, like encouraging it, coaching it, shouting for it, imprisoning people. Saul was overseeing this process here with Stephen. And then Saul later had an encounter with Jesus himself. 
Stephen didn't get to see this. But Saul, he sees Jesus and he is radically transformed. He begins to radically reorient his life around now. This group project of following Jesus together. And he's even given a new identity. As we talked about that last week, remember what baptism really is. You're being immersed into the identity of Jesus. And so to show that God gives him a new name, Paul. And the apostle Paul has written most of our New Testament letters. And thousands of people have come to know the Lord through that. Maybe millions of people throughout the years have come to know the Lord through that. Millions of followers of Jesus have learned how to follow Jesus better through that. Stephen didn't get to see how that would all play out, but the spirit still showed up. And so my prayer is that we as a church, we as a community, we as a people, this group project here called Missio Dei, which is nothing more and nothing less than just one small expression of the whole group project of the new humanity that Jesus is bringing. That we would faithfully play our part, devoting ourselves to the teaching of the word, to the fellowship of this community, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. That we would be praying that the spirit would show up, that he would do an amazing work a good work. And even if we don't get to see the final outcome of that, we trust that God is faithful. The same Jesus who rose from the grave is the same Jesus who will come back one day and he will finally and fully restore his kingdom of heaven upon earth and we will get to dwell with God forever. Amen? Let's pray.